This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state legislature adjourns in less than two weeks. Any bills that get to the governor must have bipartisan support because Democrats control the House, Republicans the Senate. It remains to be seen if a compromise on transportation funding can get through. One bill that did clear both chambers, though, and got the governor's signature has to do with free speech zones on college campuses. These will soon be illegal. Corey Hutchins of the Colorado Independent often reports on free speech stories and joins me. Corey, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm good. So members of both parties had issues with these free speech zones for student protesters. These are on uh, public college campuses. What are these free speech zones? How did they come about? Well, let's just right right off the bat say that when when we say Colorado uh, abolished free speech zones, the average listener might say, well, that sounds terrible, right? And it's true. Colorado, the governor signed a law that had a unanimous bipartisan support in the legislature that abolished free speech zones on campus. But what this actually did was expanded free speech rights on public college campuses in Colorado. Um, these free speech zones were areas on college campuses where uh, if you wanted to protest, say something that was going on or, or hold a rally or a demonstration, you had to do it in these certain cordoned off areas on campuses. And they were different depending on what college campus you were on in Colorado. And now you can't do that. You can protest or demonstrate anywhere. Right. I think in your story, you quoted a, maybe a libertarian leaning student who said, aren't any spaces in America, free speech zones? Um, how, how, did, how did these come about that, that protests could be sort of relegated to one place on a publicly funded campus? It, it's, it's interesting. So I didn't know. The first time I had seen one of these actually was uh, at a rally for libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson. And it was at um, uh, University of Colorado, South Denver campus, and there was a sign when you were getting up there that said free speech area with an arrow pointing that way. And then there were the signs for the candidates. You can imagine these liberty-minded libertarians kind of, I could feel the ground shift under my feet because of the eye rolls. Um, I looked to try and find out how they came about. It came about all across the country during the 60s um, when there were a lot of uh, anti-war protests, anti-Vietnam war protests happening on college campuses. And it was coming around the same time that the United States Supreme Court was kind of developing this body of law um, that said government agencies could impose what they called reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on speech but could not relegate its content. So if it couldn't relegate its content but it could relegate where you did it, um, that's where these kind of uh, free speech zones started popping up on campus. And of course, I think about the fact that Colorado has a history with school shootings and so there might be a mindfulness on campuses to want to protect students to keep campus safe. And maybe this was a means to do that, but not one apparently that uh, Democrats and Republicans agreed with in the long term. Yeah, what was interesting about this was that, uh, like you said in the lead into this, Colorado is a split legislature where the Republicans control the Senate, the Democrats control the House. And so you do need bipartisan support. This bill got unanimous bipartisan support, which doesn't always happen, especially on controversial issues. You had uh, a pretty far-right Republican, Tim Neville, in the Senate introducing the bill and a Democrat in the House uh, introducing one on the House side. And they did kind of come together and decide that, uh, you know, they had to hash out some some differences. Um, I, I didn't follow every version of the bill, but I understand there were some issues. The University of Colorado system also got involved. They had 
some questions about it, but uh, one of those things where everybody just kind of came together and they got it done. So there was some pushback from universities. They were a voice at the table. They wanted they wanted uh, to keep the time, place, and manner restrictions. They didn't want somebody, a student or otherwise, to basically be able to set up a soapbox, per, say, outside of a classroom um, and disturb class. So, you know, something like that is in the new law where you couldn't necessarily do something like that. So this doesn't open protests on college campuses to anywhere at any time, but it certainly liberalizes where. Yeah, it it, it does. Um, and, and we saw this on the, I think it's the Boulder campus at the University of Colorado during the uh, presidential debate last October. Um, I think that college had just one area, one quad where you can do it. Well, now you can do it anywhere. Got it. Yeah, that was the... Geo- Actually, I should say... After November 9th, you can do it anywhere. That's when it goes into effect. That's when the law goes into effect. And you're referring to that uh, early GOP presidential debate. Mm -hmm. So um, any campuses that are maybe instituting this early or have a, a head start? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how uh, many people actually really know about this. I felt that this uh, it kind of went a little undercovered. I mean, the, yeah, the Denver Post wrote about it. I know you guys had a story on it. Um, and I hadn't – I pay attention to the legislature and a lot happened. So I, I just happened to see that the law had been signed and, and I kind of think saw the headlines and kind of had the same reaction. Some people might, what? We abolished free speech zone? So I started to look into it and kind of do a little more in-depth speech, which is great that the Colorado Independent um, allows that kind of like in-depth coverage. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's how, that's how I kind of heard about it. And it's, I think it's a uniquely uh, Colorado situation here, just because of the bipartisan nature of the, of the law. Uh, not a lot of things get done at the legislature. And some of these bills are, uh, have been passed in other states, Virginia, for instance, I think Missouri and Arizona, but they've also been defeated in other places because they've kind of become uh, political message bills. Mm. And that did not happen here. And let's just say it's narrowly tailored, right, to public colleges and universities. And I remember during the Democratic National Convention in Denver, there were these similar free speech zones. Things like that wouldn't be affected because they're not on public college campuses, correct? Yeah, this is just a this is a student freedom of expression law. Got it. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much. Corey Hutchins, reporter at the Colorado Independent and correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review. You can read his report on these free speech zones, which will soon be illegal, at cprnews.org. The Sun Temple at Colorado's Mesa Verde National Park is an impressive cliff-top structure. It's shaped like the letter D and has three circular towers. It's unlike anything else at the park. An analytical statistician at Arizona State University finds the Sun Temple was designed using complex geometry, even though the ancient Puebloans had no written language or system of numbers. Professor Sherry Towers is on the line. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You first visited Mesa Verde five years ago, I understand, as a tourist. What did you notice on that visit that led you to believe the ancient builders of Mesa Verde were highly skilled at geometry? Well, I don't think I had noticed anything at the time that uh, pointed to geometry. Uh, one of the things that was pointed out on a tour that I took of Balcony House, which is a cliff dwelling about a kilometer or so away from Sun Temple, no. was that it was used for astronomical observations. For instance, the uh, rise of the summer sun at solstice. 
And so that got me interested. I actually have my one of my research interests is archaeoastronomy, which is the study of how ancient sites may have been used for the observation of celestial bodies like the sun, the moon, and the stars. I love it. Archaeoastronomy. So what a great term. Okay. Mm-hmm, that's what it's called. And so there are practitioners of that worldwide. Um, for instance, there are practitioners who have looked at things, for instance, like Stonehenge. Yeah. And there have been archaeoastronomers who have looked at the southwest at various sites, including Balcony House, and then also sites in Chaco Canyon. And so this got me interested, actually, in because in, um, I had not heard about this before, actually. And so when I got home, I started to look more into Balcony House. And when I was looking at aerial imageries of the terrain in that region, that's when I first saw Sun Temple. We didn't, we hadn't actually visited it while we were visiting the park. Oh my goodness! Time. Yeah. So my first exposure to Sun Temple was seeing the aerial imagery, and the aerial imagery for those people who would like to look it up is very striking. It's a very striking looking, very odd looking structure. I thought, wow, like why is why does it look like that? And so I started reading about it, and um, it was it's been recognized right from the get go that it was a very unique building for Pueblo architecture, and it was clear that it was a key focus of ceremony. It had never been roofed. There never was a roof, never intended to have a roof. There's no doors uh, that go from the outside walls into the interior. To access the interior of the site these days, you actually have to take a ladder in. Um, And so when I first started looking at it, it was from an archaeoastronomical perspective to try to determine whether or not they had been using features of the site, how they aligned to perhaps be studying things like where the stars rise and set. You actually wound up stumbling upon something, I don't know if it's much more interesting or equally interesting, and that had to do with the, the, the kind of geometry of this. Mm-hmm. So I went out uh, in 2015, I got a site permit, and we actually did a ground survey of the, of the site, and I also had my aerial survey measurements. And one of the things that I noticed as I was compiling all these measurements and cranking all the numbers was that, wow, I seem to be seeing the same unit of measurement over and over and over again, or multiples of it over and over and over again. Uh-huh. And what's more, I was, you know, simply plugging in numbers and trying to determine, you know, widths and lengths of, you know, various things, like, for instance, the, a rectangle that would encase the site. And I noticed, oh, that the ratio of those two numbers is almost exactly the golden ratio. And that by itself would never have prompted me to publish. But what became very apparent as time went on was that some of the geometrical shapes I was seeing were intimately related with this unit of measurement. And that is extraordinarily unlikely to occur by mere random chance. You use the term golden ratio. Um, Hmm. Explain that. To me, in, in I didn't do well in math. I'll say. <laughs> so the golden ratio is a geometrical construct, and it's actually fairly straightforward to construct with just a chord and a straight edge. And it is used a lot in Greek architecture. It's thought to have very pleasing proportions to the eye, and so you see it has been noted a lot in, um, for instance, the Parthenon uses the golden rectangle over and over again. It's seen a lot in Western art. Some people believe that there is evidence that the Egyptians were well aware of the golden rectangle, and that the Maya also used it in their in some of their ceremonial construction. And so it's just this very special rectangle that, when you see it, it really does look pleasing in its proportions. And mm. so it appears that uh, at the Sun Temple, they were aware of the golden rectangle, and it also in Chaco Canyon, which is to the south, the primary center of um, 
ceremony there was Pueblo Bonito, and it also is, the, the site itself is encased by a golden rectangle. Well, Mesa Verde National Park archaeologist Tim Hovazak thinks you may be onto something. Archaeologists working in the southwest in the field have recognized for a long time that there is a great deal of consistency in architectural form and shape in the people that built these dwellings had a system of measurement and they did have knowledge of geometry. And your point here is that it would be nearly statistically, mathematically impossible for this to just be a random coincidence. Um, How did you take measurements there? I wonder if you had to crawl around Sun Temple with the tape measure. (laughs) We did. We had to crawl around with the tape measure. And actually, some of the little doors that are there are awfully hard to get through. <laughs> and so, yes, we, we were crawling through these little doorways and, and basically taking tape measurements and, and also measurements with uh, surveyor's transit. Well, the, the mystery here is how a people with apparently no written language and no known system of numbers, how they could possess such sophisticated geometry skills. I think it's the kind of thing that if you have a person-to-person lore, it's easy to pass down this kind of knowledge. It is extremely impressive that beyond that, if you were to actually try to lay out the site, that they were able to lay out the site to a great degree of precision. The precision they achieved was about one-eighth of an inch per foot. And that's just probably with a stick and a cord, they were able to achieve this kind of precision. So they laid the site out without being able to write anything down, any notes down, because they had no written language. And they also were not able to write down any numbers because they had no written number system. And yet they achieved this interplay of geometrical shapes, this repeated unit of measure, and they managed to lay out the site. And to me, that really speaks of genius, because when I sit and think about it, if I were to have to try to do this, for instance, lay out a site like that in my backyard, I would have an extraordinarily amount of difficulty trying to achieve the precision that they did just using a stick and a cord if I was not allowed to write anything down as I was doing it. And so this speaks to the fact that it's not just stories that are passed from generation to generation, but it might be math. Not so much math as geometry. So there's a difference between math and geometry. Mm. So, um, And this has been brought up by some people who have talked to me about this story, that they say, well, is this an example of them knowing advanced mathematics? Advanced mathematics would be things like algebra. And you kind of need a written number system in order to do mathematics. Geometry, all you really need is a stick and a cord. Mm. The amount of quote-unquote math that they would have needed in order to repeat their measurement over and over again would be as simple as being able to divide a rope, divide a cord into, for instance, halves, quarters, or thirds, and even a child can do that. So it's not sophisticated mathematics in the sense that there was anything really hard in, in, you know, dividing the unit of measurement by two or by three. And yet you called this genius, but you called this genius. But it is genius. Where the genius comes in is being able to do that having and asserting and whatnot to get your repeated unit of measurements, but then also making these angles that are quite precise and repeating that unit of measurement very precisely and making these interlocking shapes and having them all come together into this site that actually is quite beautiful to look at. You can see an image of it at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. You're listening to Colorado Matters, and we're talking about the geometric genius. 
that is being recognized by uh, a research professor, Sherry Towers, who visited Mesa Verde and uh, took a look at, in particular, Sun Temple there. And I want to say that when the Sun Temple was discovered in the early 1900s, it was basically a pile of rubble. Uh, A team led by an anthropologist rebuilt parts of the fallen temple and capped it with cement to hold it in place. Could any of that work have skewed your measurements? So he didn't rebuild um, any parts of the base walls. So actually, even though it was a pile of rubble, once they removed that top layer, uh, there was substantial walls left. There was no like gaps left in the walls, if, if that's what you're, you're implying. Got it. So to try to prevent any bias that might make in measurements, which would be fairly small, we instead kept all our measurements down to near the ground where the, where the base was, where that was basically the original walls. Well, let's bring this story full circle. So you were originally interested in the archaeoastronomy of this site. Uh, You happened instead upon more of its geometry, but was Sun Temple, for instance, or some of the other structures used uh, to connect the Earth with the heavens? Yes. So that analysis is still under review. So it's something I'm still working on. But indeed, the Sun Temple actually is a remarkably complex astronomical observatory. And in fact, from what I've seen, it is the most complex astronomical observatory, ancient, prehistorical one, ever uncovered in the world. It is, uh, was used to study the, um, the sun solstices, equinox, the rise and set of the moon at its rise and set with the furthest north and south that it will rise on the horizon. And of the lists of stars that were known to be uh, sacred to the ancient Pueblo people, most of them have a rise or set alignment at that site. Wow. And so I find that extraordinary, extraordinary that not only did they include these geometrical shapes in the construction, it also appears that it really was this incredibly complex astronomical observatory. Are you going back? Oh, yes. I'll be back there actually this summer. Cool. To answer more questions, I suppose. Sherry, thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thank you. Sherry Towers is a professor in physics and statistics at Arizona State University. She researched the architecture of an ancient temple at Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado's Four Corners region. Her study appears in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Authors often get the advice to write about what they know. It helps to have lived an interesting life, though, like Denver poet Robert Cooperman. His last book was about his adventures driving a taxi cab in New York City. Cooperman's latest collection of poetry is about the hat factory his family owned and where he worked as a young man. In many ways, this is a coming-of-age story. And we're going to start right off with the poem Jackie Kennedy's Hats. Hi, Robert. Will you read that for us? Certainly. Every time Jackie Kennedy and her dashing husband appeared outdoors on TV... JFK with his hair tussled by the manly wind, Jackie in an elegant chapeau. My father would bless her unsolicited endorsement of the millinery trade in general, his factory in particular. But then her terrible betrayal. 
On the evening news, Jackie's dark locks blew free. No hat to hold them in place. No inspiration for other women to follow her fashion example. There goes the business, Dad sighed. Over the next few weeks, there she was, again and again, hatless. The demise wasn't quick. No customers called the next morning, shouting at Dad to cancel their orders or him reading in the papers about fancy hat shop proprietors jumping from high windows like stockbrokers on Black Tuesday in 1929. Maybe more merciful, but the business limped on, a wounded hare pursued by a fox. It took a decade for the collapse, some seasons better than others. Through it all, Dad couldn't help remember that he'd love Kennedy's beautiful wife, then widow, but he never trusted her again. Was Jackie Kennedy really, and then Onassis, was she really that influential? Back then she was, in terms of, of women's fashions, absolutely. And so, in, in some ways, markets would would rise and fall on Exa- what exactly. she wore. Yeah. So your father owned this millinery business in New York with your grandfather. And another partner. Yeah, a rather unsavory character named yeah. Harry Burner. <laughs> yeah, his is the only name I didn't change uh, in the collection. Why? You wanted to... Before, it, one, it was perfect for what he was like. The the burner. <laughs> yeah, he was a burner. And and two, uh, I, I still haven't forgiven him. <laughs> for what? Uh, well, he was skimming money from the... Uh, uh, from the business, he ran off with with a part of the last pay, you know last payroll, and he deserted his wife as well. He was a philanderer. He was a drunk, violent drunk. Y- yep, yep. Why don't we have you read a poem about Harry Burner? I want to have you explain just a few terms first, though, sure. to clue us in on the yeah. making of hats because mm-hmm. that'll help. Yeah. Um, in a hat factory, what are dye fires? It's a, a metal shape that you take a piece of felt or buckram that has been dampened and two guys stand on either side of the dye fire and they hold the, the material down onto the the shape that you want the hat to be, like okay. a pillbox or a cloche or whatever. Yeah. And then one of them steps on a lever and that lowers the second part of the dye fire down onto the hat and you hold it for just the right amount of time and release it and that creates the shape of the hat. Okay, know? what's a blocker? A block. That's the the act of blocking was what I just described. Okay, those two guys standing there shaping the hat. Finishers. Finishers are the women who would sew artificial flowers, ribbons on. So multi-step process for yeah, sure. Yeah. N- now that we have those those terms, read Harry and his bottles. Harry and his bottles. There were stages to Harry's drinking. From when he arrived until the lights dimmed, the dye fires sputtered and the blockers and finishes went home. The first pint got him limbered up, relaxed, a slugger taking on-deck cuts. The second, everyone's best friend. He gave strangers free meals and a bed for the night. With the third bottle, he galloped around the factory, slapping his rear end like a jockey whipping his pony through a tough stretch run. He counted faster, more accurately than bank tellers and croupiers, croaked out the songs of his youth, insisted the women working the sewing machines sing along, as if in a bar just after V.E. Day. 
With the fourth pint, he was fighting the war. Everyone in the factory, a German sniper. My father's eyes rolled. He'd shrug. He's okay, most of the time. Until the time Harry stormed into the office, grabbed the phone, and shouted to a client, Pay up, or I cut out your heart. Just as my father ran in, the cops the guy had called, in a panic or for evil spite, dragged Harry off. My parents' glances, a conspiracy of, can we leave him at Rikers for a month? (laughs) We're speaking with the Denver poet Robert Cooperman about his latest collection, City Hat Frame Factory. It's about the millinery business that his family owned and where he worked um, from when you were about 15 till about 22 or 23. Something like that, yeah. You were a board wetter? Yes. Okay, that, that's not a bed wetter. A no, board, no. What, what is a board wetter? The material that we worked with, that we made the hats out of, came in very, very stiff. So it, if you try to put that on a die, it would just probably just burn up or crack apart. Mm. So what you had to do is make the material damp. You counted hats and orders as well? Right. You, you did deliveries? Right. Yes, I love when poetry celebrates the mundane, and so I'd like to have you read one last poem, um, The Ford Econovan, which which speaks to the delivery aspect of your work in your family's millinery business. The Ford Econovan, white and shiny. Dad drove it to and from work, reluctantly trusted it to our delivery man, Santiago, like a father warning his son to be careful on a date. Dad loved to hunch over the steering wheel as if an ambulance driver carrying life-saving vaccines. He'd park at the plug in front of the factory. Easier to load, the beat cop paid off, and Dad made his wife a gorgeous wide-brimmed hat she could wear with the panache of Eliza Doolittle at Ascot. To Dad, that van was the symbol that he'd made it in America, his own boss, if you didn't count his partner, a madman running on fumes of scotch. And there's Harry again. Um, what became of the business? I mean, the, it, the poem about Jackie indicates that it, it was not headed in a great direction. It, it didn't. It, it went bankrupt. I was about, I guess, 22 or 23. I can't remember anymore. My father had to take a series of lousy jobs that got lousier and lousier until his brother got him a job selling uh, boys' and uh, youth's pants to various department stores in Manhattan. What memories stand out uh, for you at the City Hat Frame Factory? I guess Christmas time. It was very festive, and uh, I was always you know, I was always a spoiled little brat. I didn't want to be there, but I, you know, I was helping out my dad. Uh, all the, the the workers would would play various uh, very loud Hispanic music, which was a lot of fun to listen to. My the other memory was was the time I attacked uh, Harry with a, with a, a pinking shears. Uh pinking shears. Yeah, a, a part of making hats. Had he threatened you? He slapped me. I grabbed the pinking shears. I I went for him, and I I used a, a, an expletive, you know, to make it sound more threatening than I was. And thank God I missed them. And my father just just climbed all over me and and uh, made me apologize. But I didn't have to go to work for a couple of days after that. <laughs> <laughs> that was your reward. Yes. Or your punishment. <laughs> yeah. Are you better off for having worked at this place? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It, it taught me discipline. You know, it was, it, it was also nice to be able to hang out with my dad, you know. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. 
Denver poet Robert Cooperman. His new collection is called City Hat Frame Factory. You can read that poem about Jackie Kennedy at cprnews.org. Longtime Coloradans may remember going to the Denver, a downtown department store that closed 30 years ago this month. It was an institution, a place not just to shop, but to lunch, to see and be seen. Mark A. Barnhouse has a love for lost Denver, and he has written a history of the store. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Your book is called The Denver Dry Goods, Where Colorado Shopped with Confidence. What do you mean by that? Well, that was actually their, their own tagline. that they, they In their advertising, they said, where Denver shops with confidence. I see. What did that mean to them, to shop well, with confidence? Well, it was all about getting value for money. So you you know that when you went in there, if it was uh, something cheap from the bargain department or something expensive from the designer salon upstairs, whatever price you paid for it was probably a fair price. Do you remember this story yourself? Um, well, the, the, they stopped using that tagline, I think, back in the in the 60s. So I don't quite remember that. But the story itself. Oh, the store. Yes, yes. of course. The store. Uh, when I was a child, I, I went there uh, about seven years old. I went to the tea room for breakfast with Santa. Breakfast with Santa. Yes. Okay. It was fun. More than just sitting on his lap, I guess. It was It was an entire tea room filled with small children and their parents. We should talk about the tea room. We should. Which became the place to go in Denver for years. There was an express elevator so that you didn't have to stop at each landing and you could get right to the tea room. Why, why was it so important? Well, you know, it, it's funny how it evolved over time. They, they'd had a tea room uh, early on, about 1907. They had their first tea room. But when they added on to the store in 1924, they built this vast space up on the fifth floor. And it attracted not only the ladies who lunch, you know, the people that were shopping. Uh, it also attracted men. Uh, the businessmen of 17th Street would come over. And they had a special section uh, kind of behind uh, partitions that were, it was just for them, these big round tables. And you'd have 17th Street uh, people from the, the banks and the brokerage firms and the lawyers, and they would have lunch together and do deals. This is in downtown Denver, of course. We'll talk about uh, what became of the Denver end of the building that it's in, but I want to dig into some of the history here. It really goes back to sort of pioneer times, even before Denver was much of a city and people knew that it would become you know, something of a, of a central city. Um, Irish connections, connections to Irish immigrants. Definitely. Um, the store really got its start before it was called the Denver. Uh, it got its start uh, when a man named Michael J. McNamara came to Denver in the early 1870s. And he was uh, clerking in a now forgotten store. And he met a man named Drew, Edgar Drew. And together they decided to go into business together in 1877. And they opened a little shop on the corner of 15th and Larimer uh, called Drew and McNamara. Uh, three years later, Drew wanted out. McNamara bought him out. It just became McNamara Dry Goods. Um, and then he eventually um, decided to move to the corner of 16th and California um, in 1889. Um, he, he built a three-story uh, brick uh, structure on that corner, and uh, he ended up losing it, though, a few years later at the pan Panic of 1893, when, uh, you know, every, every merchant in Denver was squeezed for cash, and he couldn't pay his creditors. Was this the Silver Panic? This was the Silver Panic yeah. of 1893. And so it gets into different hands, also the hands of, a, of another, another Irishman. Irishman yeah. Oh. So, so one of his big creditors was the Colorado National Bank. And the vice president of the Colorado National Bank and part owner of the bank was a man named Dennis Sheedy. 
Dennis Sheedy being kind of a a big wheel in town. And uh, he and his partner, Charles Kuntz of the bank, decided to take the dry goods store over instead of just letting it go completely dark. Right, and taking it as a loss for the bank. Yes. And so they they started a new company. They called it originally Sheedy and Kuntz Dry Goods Company. And they decided, I don't know if it was because they didn't want an Irish name and a German name in the name of the store. Huh. They thought maybe let's just call it the Denver Dry Goods Company. And it eventually became the Denver. Yeah, they, sort, they, sort of they locked the extra words off in the 60s. You write that female clerks were forced to wear all white in the summer and all black in the winter so that they wouldn't clash with the merchandise they were selling. That's right. There was definitely sort of a class thing going on with, uh, the, you know, the shop girls. Before they, before they enacted that uh, regulation, the shop girls had to they could come in and all kinds of bright floral things, and some of the customers complained. So, <laughs> the, the, about the clash, uh, but they didn't like it. They 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 thought the girls should be in their place, and they didn't want the shop girls uh, to look better than them. I see. So, but the shop girls felt that there was a bit of a double standard because men who worked at the, the Denver Dry Goods wore all manner of outfits that clashed. Oh, they did. With I mean, merchandise. Uh, I, I quote from some woman who was complaining about one of the men wearing a, a loud checked suit. You know. So, so why why could the men clash and the women not? Oh, do you think there might have been a double standard a double for women? Double standard, maybe. Yeah. So uh, that certainly is part of the history. I I think it was interesting the race history you write about that uh, come the 1960s there are protests by a group outside the Denver because there were no black employees, either in the sales or offices. Well, they did have black employees at the time in the sort of janitorial end of things and Mm. and those kinds of things. But no, the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, as it was known, um, they they staged pickets in front of uh, not only the downtown stores, but also the suburban branches. And initially, the store didn't want to talk to them. But they came around eventually, and they started hiring African Americans for uh, front of house sales positions. Um, but it's sad commentary, I think, that they they had to be sort of forced to do it. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new book, The Denver Dry Goods, where Colorado shopped with confidence. Longtime Coloradans may remember the Denver department store, Mark. Barnhouse is the author. And I want to say that there are some really gorgeous historical photos at cprnews.org of the store. And we've also posted there a recipe for chicken a la king, which was served at the tea room. That's right. It was their signature dish. And uh, you can make it. This is not the recipe that uh, they actually use in the tea room because this is sized for, for domestic consumption. Oh, I see. You pared it down. Yeah, well, I didn't pare it down. The final executive chef, a man named Fred Batchelor, uh, pared it down for the newspapers and I just re- reproduced it. Got it. What other items were on the menu there? Oh, they had peach cobbler. Um, it was a comfort food place. You know, that's what we'd call it now. I don't think they use the term, but but it, they, you could buy meatloaf and, and uh, ham sandwiches and just ordinary food, but comfortable and well-prepared and high-quality ingredients. Eventually, the Denver Dry began expanding into suburbia in about the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So there were stores all around Colorado, all around the metro. Is that right? That's right. They started with the the branch store in Cherry Creek. The building is still there today, actually. Um, And I learned that the development was originally to be called not Cherry Creek, but Culloden Moore. Uh, that was Tim, Temple Buell, the famous uh, Denver architect, was the developer. He had owned, he'd owned the land since the 1920s. And 
I don't know where he came up with that name, but by the time the, the center opened, it was called Cherry Creek Shopping well, Center. So it struck me as almost like Scottish, Coloden Moor, but I think Coloden is Colorado Denver. That's what I thought, yes. And then Moor, M-O-O-R. That just gives it a country flair. I think Cherry Creek rolls off the tongue just a bit better than Coloden Moor. I think so, yeah. Okay. So, no, and so they, they branched there. They had a, a store in Lakeside was their second branch uh, on land that had been owned by the amusement park originally. And then they, they kept going through the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s with new branches. Well, the end of the Denver Dry Goods Company comes on January 30th, 1987, when its main competitor, May DNF, announced Denver Dry would close or they would take over some of those stores uh, under their name. It is fascinating to read about how big a story it was that this department store was closing. I mean, it was on the front page of the Denver Post in headlines normally reserved for, you know, declarations of war. It really was. Um, Partly, I think, maybe it was the Post's largest advertiser at the time. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was like, oh, no, there goes our largest advertiser. But no, the the May DNF store was part of May Department stores, and they had bought the Denver's parent the previous summer. Uh, Associated Dry Goods of New York City. And uh, they originally said that we were, they were going to run both both chains here in Colorado. One would maybe be more high-end, that would be the Denver, and then one would be more for the middle class. And there was just a, a lot of coverage for weeks, actually, about the closing and the sort of cultural repercussions of that. What what of the building today? Well, the building today is, is one of the largest uh, preservation projects in Colorado history. Uh, the Denver Urban Renewal Authority purchased it from uh, the May Company, and they took a while to get going. But uh, it's housing, it's retail, and it's office space now. Uh, and, and looking beautiful. And it looks gorgeous. Yeah. They stripped all that paint off. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Mark A. Barnhouse is the author of The Denver Dry Goods, Where Colorado Shopped with Confidence. He'll give a walking tour of Denver's 16th Street Mall as part of Doors Open Denver this weekend. Lots of photos, as we said, and that recipe at cprnews.org. We'd love it if you shared your memories of the Denver. News at cpr.org is the email address. News at cpr.org. I'm Ryan Moore. Okay, now to another Denver institution, Dazzle Jazz Club. It's moving from 9th and Lincoln to a historic spot downtown, the old Bowers Building, which used to be a soda fountain and candy shop. It was once called the most fabled, beloved emporium in the Rocky Mountain West. Dazzle's move next month is just the latest chapter in Colorado's long jazz history. For more of it, let's listen back to a conversation with Brett Saunders. He's jazz columnist for the Denver Post and, as you may know, morning host on KBCO Radio. Brett, welcome back to the show. It's my pleasure. Great to see you. Let's start with Denver's historic Five Points neighborhood, really the epicenter for jazz in this city. Am I right about that? Pretty interesting because it was known as the Harlem of the West. It was the stop between St. Louis and Los Angeles. Mm. And a lot of bands would come through and play in Denver. But here's the part that is sort of troubling but also fascinating. A lot of artists like Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong would play in specific hotels in downtown Denver, but they wouldn't be allowed to stay at those hotels. So they would stay at one of the hotels 
in the Five Points neighborhood. So celebrated for their talent and then... Uh, segregated. Segregated for their race. Yes, I have told them in advance. They can't break up our romance. Living up to every vow. And keeping out of mischief now, yeah. One of those hotels, of course, the Rossonian name that endures today. Right, and a lot of musicians would stay there and then maybe play there, play a show after they played a previous show in downtown Denver. There was also a club called the Casino Dance Hall that had a seating for a thousand people and at its height it was, I guess, a really jumping place. How about some other names? Uh, Count Basie and his orchestra played there, uh, George Shearing, Dinah Washington. There was a saxophonist named Paul Quinichette who was actually born in Denver and he was known as the vice president. Lester Young, of course, was known as the president mm. of the saxophone. Paul Quinichette was the vice president. <laughs> and uh, he could often be found on the scene. Quinichette in 1959 released an album called The Kid from Denver, and it featured a song of the same name. We, of course, can't talk about jazz in downtown Denver without talking about El Chapultepec. You're absolutely right, Ryan. El Chapultepec has been an institution in Denver for decades. Uh, Jerry Krantz is probably the most famous owner. He was known for letting Jack Kerouac hang out there even though he didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, a lot of the beat poets liked to hang out at El Chapultepec and hear some of the great musicians. And great musicians, indeed, did perform there or just come and spend some time there, like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, even Ella Fitzgerald walk through the doors of the El Chapultepec, which is a hard thing to imagine now when you visit. But Yeah, I mean, it's small and, right. <clears throat> you know, urban and gritty. Even former President Bill Clinton played there when he was campaigning for president, played the saxophone. I love the idea that Frank Sinatra stepped in there. There's a rumor that uh, Jerry Krantz, who owned it, won the club in a poker game. <laughs> there, there are a lot of stories like that in the world of jazz. <laughs> I can't say it's true. I can't say it's false. For many years, Colorado was the home of an annual jazz party hosted by a former investment banker named Dick Gibson. Tell us about him. Dick Gibson was a fascinating character because he was uh, in the world of investments in New York. And one day he decided that he did not want to live in those conditions. So he picked what he thought was the best place in the world to live, which was Denver, Colorado. But he missed the jazz. So he started bringing in jazz musicians. He found his fortune by being an early supporter and investor in the water pick product up in Fort Collins. The, the dental. Right, exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Someone gave one to him, and apparently it sat on the shelf for years. He got it out one day and realized it was a magnificent invention. He put his money into Waterpik. It paid out millions of dollars later on. So at some point in the 60s, he had the kind of cash flow where he could bring his favorite musicians, a lot of swing musicians, guys by the 1960s who were out of fashion. He could bring them to Colorado and put them on a bus and drive them up to Aspen or drive them up to Vail, and they would play for two or three days at a time. These were public parties uh, or private events? Well, 
they were ticketed events. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. he would charge by the couple. I think he started charging $50 a couple uh, for the shows at the original Hotel Jerome in Aspen. But that $150 pass for a couple would allow you into every event all weekend long. Wow. Run by one rich guy, presumably with pretty good teeth. Uh, let's listen <laughs> to some music from the world's greatest jazz band, which was a group Gibson put together in 1968. Uh, this is Royal Garden Blues from 1970. One of the musicians who performed at Gibson's parties was clarinetist Peanuts Hucko, who played with Glenn Miller and Louis Armstrong. In 1967, he opened a jazz club in Denver. What do you know about that club? Peanuts Hucko, like you mentioned, phenomenal clarinet player, uh, took over the Club Navarre in the 1960s. And he brought a new vitality to the club. And I'm told, way before my time, Ryan, that it was quite the hot spot at the time. Navarre, like the building across from the Brown Palace downtown? Exactly. And there are legends that the Navarre before being a jazz club, many years before being a jazz club, was a house of prostitution. Uh, prostitution. Yes, we ladies of the that word, can we not? And, and there are legends that there was a tunnel underground, obviously underground, there was a tunnel that went from the Club Navarre across the street to the Brown Palace. So the patrons of the Club Navarre, when it was a house of ill repute, would be inconspicuous. Colorado seems to have a large number of summer jazz festivals. What are your favorites? Well, it's funny. We were talking about uh, Richard Gibson's jazz parties, and I think... Up in Aspen back in the day. Up in Aspen as well as Vail. Now every Labor Day weekend, there is a jazz party that takes place in Vail, and it features contemporary musicians. But it has that same spirit where over the course of several days, you can go and enjoy various combinations of those musicians playing together. It seems like we should mention the fact that Metro Denver has a jazz radio station, and many... Jazz stations have gone the way of the dodo. But Kuvo, <laughs> Kuvo has remained. KUVO is a fine jazz station. They play a nice variety of sounds. What I like about KUVO is they don't compromise commercially. Not that I have anything against smooth jazz. Or commercial radio uh, for that matter. Or commercial Zonis. radio for that matter. Commercial <laughs> radio is just great. But I like the way KUVO sticks to the tradition of American music. Uh, It sticks to the traditions of Latin music. It's a very special radio station, and really, like you mentioned, one of only a few left in America. Well, why don't we end with, I don't know, is there a song that you think particularly typifies jazz here? There's a song that Bill Frizzell, the guitarist, recorded back in the mid-1980s for ECM Records. It was the title cut of an album called Rambler. And I was back in Michigan. I was still a teenager when I heard this record, and it grabbed my attention. And it's been one of my favorite recordings ever since. The orchestration or the, or the arrangement of the record is very strange and, again, filled with space. So Rambler from Bill Frizzell. I would love to go out on that, Ryan. We're, we're doing it. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Great to see you.
Brett Saunders with a history of jazz venues and festivals in Colorado. He's jazz columnist for the Denver Post and morning host at KBCO Radio. Denver's Dazzle Jazz Club is scheduled to open in its new downtown home May 1st. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. Thank you.